This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Mark Hazy. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Do you have any sacred sites in your community? Maybe you do, you don't know about them. Or you're really across it, you learn heaps about it at school, your community does take a lot of pride in it. There are so many culturally significant sites in this country. Some of them are being damaged, though. Intentionally, by accident, Australians are destroying their history, and experts are wondering how we stop it. Later, we've got this story. We're heading out to see some of these sites, hear about some of the damage, and speak to First Nations people about what it means to them. We're also going to be speaking with an archaeologist who specialises in First Nations history. First, though, we're going to check in with Gaza. Hack. It's a disaster, and people are starving to death. On Triple J. A massive international effort is underway right now to try to stop the Israel-Gaza war from spreading in the Middle East. Over the weekend, we heard from the leader of Hezbollah, which is a militant group in Lebanon, and he warned a wider conflict is possible. There were more really disturbing developments over the weekend. You might have heard Israel admitted to carrying out an airstrike on an ambulance in northern Gaza. It was said to be being used by a Hamas terrorist cell. That's what Israel said. The Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza says more than 9,000 people have been killed in Gaza since the October 7 terrorist attack. That includes thousands of children. Protests are continuing around the world, including here in Australia, calling for a ceasefire, a humanitarian pause. So is that going to happen? Will there be an end to the fighting? And are Western countries like Australia doing enough? Well, let's ask an expert. Professor Ben Saul is Australia's new special rapporteur on human rights and counterterrorism at the UN. If you don't know what that means, probably understandable. Basically, he doesn't represent Australia at the United Nations. He's an independent expert. So he's making sure countries around the world who are fighting terrorism are doing it in a way that respects the rules of war, humanitarian law. Ben, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. How do you describe what we're seeing at the moment in terms of a humanitarian situation in Gaza and how it's deteriorating? It's an absolute humanitarian catastrophe. I mean, there's no other way of looking at it. For over three weeks, uh, Israel uh, completely cut off almost all of the essentials of life in Gaza, food, fuel, water, medicine. Uh, and of course, the results are, are predictable. Uh, over two million civilians are, are facing great suffering. Of course, in armed conflict, uh, the, the law allows civilians to be harmed sometimes during the fighting, but you absolutely cannot deny the essentials of life to a whole civilian population uh, and punish them in that way. And in fact, uh, it's a war crime to deliberately starve a civilian population. Both parties must never target civilians deliberately. And when targeting uh, legitimate military uh, objectives, they must refrain from causing excessive civilian casualties relative to the military advantage that they're seeking. Uh, they also can't use uh, make indiscriminate attacks, which means attacking in a way which could not distinguish between military targets and civilians. So, for example, if you use very large weapons, explosive bombs in a, in a densely populated urban area, those kind of weapons are, are very likely to hit civilians as well as uh, the military. 
I'm just wondering, in your opinion, you know, you speak there about a country not being able to cause excessive civilian casualties. I mean, the UN has said more than 40% of the dead in Gaza are children. By that measure, in your opinion, has Israel committed war crimes? I certainly uh, would say, firstly, of course, it's hard to make uh, assessments because there have been over 11,000 strikes by Israel. And you would need to know uh, more information about what Israel uh, was doing in each of those strikes to figure out whether it was acting uh, illegally or was lawfully within its within its rights. Secondly, though, what I what I absolutely would say uh, is that the extent and scale of the harm to civilians in Gaza does seem to be, at least in some of the strikes, manifestly excessive uh, in terms of the civilian casualties. Uh, and some of those strikes also would, would seem to be indiscriminate. Uh, I mean, uh, we've seen lots of examples where I think that could be the case, attacks in relation to ambulances, hospitals, uh, as well as uh, a refugee camp. And so I think uh, uh, we, we do need the international community to step up and ensure that there are uh, appropriate investigations and that anybody responsible, whether that's military commanders or the political leadership, uh, are held responsible. In terms of the aid as well, I mean, you've said that it's incumbent on a country to allow the free flow of aid. Is that happening? So some aid has been getting in through the Egyptian border crossing, but it's a it's a drop in the ocean compared to what is needed. And I think that's what is really shocking about this uh, current conflict uh, from the standpoint of the responsibility of the, the rest of the international community. I mean, you've got lots of countries lining up to back Israel's right to defend its people or its right of self-defence, as some of them uh, are putting it. Uh, and yet it doesn't seem like uh, aid, assistance, weapons, for example, from the United States are being withheld when Israel has been deliberately starving civilians for over three weeks. I think that's quite shocking uh, under the Geneva Conventions of 1949, which are the, the rules of warfare. All countries have an obligation to ensure respect for international humanitarian law by other countries. So if you do have a position of influence over another country, like the US undoubtedly does over Israel because it does provide uh, lots of money and weapons to Israel, then I think uh, those countries must use that influence to stop these war crimes from happening. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Counter-Terrorism, Professor Ben Saul, about the situation in Gaza at the moment. Ben, the term genocide is being used by some to describe what's happening in Gaza. Obviously, Israel has denied this. Can you explain technically what genocide is and if you think it applies here? So under international law, genocide is the uh, intentional destruction of a particular group, like a, a racial, religious or national group. So here, the, the Palestinians, it can be part of a population, so it need not be an intent to destroy the whole population, you know, for example, in the West Bank as well. The debate at the moment, a very high level UN human rights official recently uh, resigned. Uh, some other hu UN human rights experts have, have been warning of a grave risk of genocide. Look, I think at the moment, clearly it's not like the situation in Rwanda in 1994, where there was a, a very organised and systematic campaign of mass slaughter of civilians in a very deliberate fashion. 
On the other hand, we have seen uh, some very senior Israeli politicians through to military leaders and uh, members of the uh, Israeli other mem senior members of the Israeli, Israeli government and parliament making a whole series of inflammatory and dehumanising statements which verge on uh, direct and public incitement to genocide, which is also a crime under international law. Uh, so, for example, the, the, the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, cited a verse from the Bible where God calls on the Jews to slaughter everybody on the other side. And the passage refers specifically to murdering children, women and men on the other side. We've had another minister in the government recently call for the nuclear annihilation of the whole of Gaza. So these kinds of statements uh, absolutely are the stuff of preparations for genocide. Hopefully it doesn't go that far. And as I said, it's not yet uh, systematically organised in that way. But as international lawyers and human rights people, obviously people are concerned if those kinds of warning signs seem to be there. And presumably that uh, works the other way as well with leaders in Israel, advocates saying that those same threats are being pushed toward Jewish people by members of Hamas. That's right. And of course, there's a, a long history of deeply disturbing, uh, violent anti-Semitic speech uh, in the region, and not only in the region, I mean, in other parts of the world uh, as well. Uh, some states uh, from time to time have backed that kind of, or, or, or use that kind of rhetoric themselves, including uh, Iran. Uh, Hezbollah, uh, of course, is in, involved in the dispute and has made those kinds of statements. Uh, I mean, I think we have to be careful here that criticism of Israel and, and the state of Israel, of course, is not calling for the destruction of the Jewish people, you know, and the physical extermination. I mean, you can have a disagreement about what state should look like and where borders should be and who should rule a particular uh, piece of land. But that's quite different from calling deliberately to murder Jews because they're Jews. And there's absolutely a long history of that kind of speech uh, in the region as well. Ben, there's a lot of calls for a ceasefire or humanitarian pause. Is there an obligation for Israel to do this if so many civilians are being killed? So under international humanitarian law, there's no obligation as such to agree to ceasefires in, in certain circumstances. But to go back to what I said before, uh, it's crystal clear that Israel does have an obligation to allow the unimpeded flow of necessary humanitarian relief to ensure the survival of civilians in Gaza. Now, it hasn't been doing that, and as a result of not doing that for so many weeks, we have this uh, unprecedented humanitarian disaster in the, in the area. What that means, I think, is that the only way at this point in time that you could effectively and safely deliver humanitarian relief to the people of Gaza on the scale necessary is to absolutely have a humanitarian pause in the fighting or a series of humanitarian pauses in the fighting. Now, that may not be uh, Gaza-wide, but certainly uh, in those many areas from the south to the north as well, of course, where humanitarian relief is, is so sorely needed at the moment, uh, I just don't see how uh, any other way that you could uh, deliver the, the amount of aid you need in the time we need it to get there uh, without having those kinds of pauses.
Do you think that other countries, world leaders, including Australia's leaders, uh, need to be increasing the calls for some kind of a ceasefire? Do you think Western countries are doing enough to, to call for peace? Certainly in their public comments and behind the scenes, uh, many Western states have been pressing Israel for that. But I, I saw just recently that the US said, oh, I, you know, uh, it's done its best and Israel um, just isn't listening to it um, and therefore, it, you know, it can't do any more. Uh, I mean, that's clearly not true because, of course, uh, at the same time, the US Secretary of Defence has said we will provide unconditional military support to Israel. Now, if you are concerned about the humanitarian situation or you are concerned that Israel may be committing war crimes, why are you still providing weapons to them to help them in that campaign of committing war crimes and denying humanitarian relief through a siege and blockade? Uh, I mean, it's th those positions are just completely inconsistent. Uh, so it is clear more needs to be done. Uh, lots of uh, states absolutely understandably have a great deal of sympathy uh, for Israel because of the uh, attacks on October 7, which were horrific and themselves constitute war crimes of murder and hostage taking uh, and the plight of the hostages in Gaza who are victims of terrorism uh, must not be forgotten in all of this. But that doesn't give Israel a licence to do whatever it likes uh, to the people of Gaza who are themselves, like the innocent Israelis who are attacked, uh, also innocents in this conflict. Ben, as I said earlier, we heard the leader of another militant group uh, based in Lebanon, Hezbollah, speak over the weekend. Listening to what he had to say, what likelihood do you think there is of this conflict spilling over into other countries? It's a good question and it's it's really hard for anyone to predict at this point. Uh, I mean, in Nasrallah's speech, he didn't give much away. I mean, he said, look, we, we've already been mounting some attacks across the border from Lebanon into Israel. At the same time, he didn't say that Hezbollah would escalate the conflict at this point, but then you wouldn't expect him to say that necessarily. I mean, that would, that would uh, defeat the, the element of surprise if they did want to engage in some kind of uh, really significant attack on Israel. At the same time, you've got uh, Houthi rebels in Yemen firing missiles from a from from a long distance towards Israel, and the US has been intercepting some of those um, in the in the region. There's definitely a huge amount of anger in the Arab world, in particular, uh, about Israel's conduct. I don't think there's much evidence, may have happened, but I haven't seen much evidence of it, that Israel has been deliberately targeting civilians because they're civilians. I mean, I think what's more has been going on is that they just haven't been sufficiently careful in their targeting of military objectives and, of course, civilians wear the brunt of that. But when people look at that from afar, they see, as you say, 4,000 dead Palestinian children who bear no responsibility for any of this conflict. Uh, I mean, I, I think what we're missing here, of course, also is looking at how to resolve the structural conditions or root causes underlying this whole conflict. Uh, I mean, this, these conflicts have been going on for, for, for a century. It's a cycle of violence which uh, keeps recurring and I think we really need to learn the lessons of that and, and fix the problem once and for all. Definitely a very busy time for you. We appreciate you giving us the opportunity to ask you some questions. Professor Ben Saul, UN Special Rapporteur for uh, Human Rights and Counterterrorism, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. 
And if you do want to keep across what's happening in Gaza, obviously ABC News Online has the latest all the time. We're going to keep you across the big developments this week as well. Pack. You don't go and pull down a cathedral or destroy the Egyptian pyramids. On Triple J. Do you know much about sacred Indigenous sites near you in your community? Whether it's a landmark, and ancient art, some of these sites have been considered sacred for thousands of years, but unfortunately, many are being vandalised or accidentally damaged by people. And Indigenous communities in some parts of the country are really worried about disregard, disrespect, a lack of awareness about culturally significant places. Reporter Kira Proust has been looking into it. It's a misty wet day on the New South Wales central coast and I'm heading down a track with some local Aboriginal people to see an ancient art site known as Bulgandri. It sits in the Brisbane Water National Park and the rock carvings here date back thousands of years, each telling an important story about Aboriginal culture and spirituality, as Gamilori, Mandy Andenji and Awaba man Kevin Gavi Duncan explains. They're very special. You know, some of these sites are older than the you know, the pyramids of Egypt. They're much older than Stonehenge and other places around the world. But I think in Australian culture, we don't, you know, regard or recognise these properly, which we should. There hasn't been enough education put in regards to Aboriginal culture and history. The site has been vandalised recently with motorbike tracks and scratches evident over the rock carvings. To Gavi, it's a sign the community doesn't understand or respect Aboriginal culture. Imagine um, walking into an art gallery and rearranging the Mona Lisa. Defacing um, defacing the engravings on the pyramids of Egypt. You can see right down to the back of her body and then down to her feet. So they have really... More damage has been done at a separate sacred Aboriginal women's site in a state forest nearby, which 26-year-old Dundalimor Dabagal Wiradjuri woman Minmai Gugubara took me to. If you want to pop your things down and... um, Oh, I got all this baby waddle here for us. So I've just brushed yourself. Just go over myself. So we're just collecting some eucalyptus leaves. Um, so what I'm going to do is brush us both before we go in. So it's uh, similar to a smoking ceremony. What we'll do is announce ourselves as to who you are, where you come from, as I will do in language. And I yeah, get goosebumps coming in here. This is country welcoming us in. So I say, Yo! Minmai Gugubara! Because you can see this is her dress. Where they've scratched out, you know, this is the... Minwai shows me some of the damage on the rocks. Someone has left behind burnt charcoal from a fire and some of the rock art has been scratched over, including the sacred carving of the emu dinner one. They have completely decapitated her. The formations and the features of her face, which have been here since those women who carved this thousands and thousands of years ago, has now been decapitated. And you can see her. You can see her face. I cried, I literally cried when I come here. It was a sunny day and I needed that connection. I needed to come here as as an Aboriginal woman of what I've been invited here to do. It's not a joke. You come here and you tell me, oh, well, this is my walking track. I don't really care about what it was before. This is older than any of those things that you'll fly over to the other side of the world and pay $12,000 to go and look at. It's not just a drawing on the ground. It's like what this, this is made to be now. 
This is our stories. This is our lifeblood. Under the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Act, it's an offence to harm or destroy an Aboriginal object or place, which means people who get caught doing the wrong thing can be fined up to half a million dollars or go to jail. Both Minmai and Gavi reckon the agencies overseeing these sites need to do more to protect them and are calling for better education about these places within the broader community. You do. You need to learn them from day one about how how everything from day one affects up until this point. And Mm. that's where the deep level of respect and understanding comes into it. And you begin to understand our culture and our spirituality. In a statement, the Forestry Corporation of New South Wales says they don't disclose or promote information about the site's locations and that there is a small sign in place to encourage people to respect the area. Meanwhile, the state's National Parks and Wildlife Service says it works with local Aboriginal groups to manage and protect cultural sites, but that it's always looking at ways to improve how it educates people on the significance of these places. Minmai would like to see a public walking track through the Sacred Women's site removed and more natural barriers set up to make sure it's kept for Aboriginal women. I don't care about the politics or what anyone else has to say about who owns what or whatever. This is an ancient space that our women were spiritually connected to. And to disregard that is soulfully wrong. Hack on Triple J. Kira Proust with that story. People messaging in on the text line, on Instagram as well. Someone says, show some respect for Australian history. Another person says, hopefully the people responsible get fines and jail time. It's disgraceful behaviour. I want to get into it a bit more. Dr. Tristan Jones is an archaeologist, an expert in Indigenous heritage, and she's with the University of Sydney and is joining us now. Dr. Jones, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. What do you think we need to do to better protect these ancient and important sacred sites? Yeah, I was really disheartened when I got contacted by the ABC about another instance of vandalism of uh, sacred rock art sites. I think it's a very complex issue, Dave, but I think, you know, education for the general public and better awareness is probably the key to giving people a greater understanding of the significance of these sacred sites. Do you think a lot of this is just people don't realise what they're doing or is it um, there is malice involved, a bit of both? What are you seeing generally in in the vandalism instances uh, across the country? I would like to think most people have good intentions when interacting with rock art places. Vandalism is actually not that common But, you know, we we have seen some instances recently, like the case in Uluru and also uh, another recent case this year down in South Australia with Kulnalda Cave of, you know, deliberate acts of vandalism for uh, sacred rock art sites. And that's really um, disappointing. And I suppose really one of the only strategies um, to try and mitigate against um, those sorts of incidents is, you know, tighter active surveillance and people sort of understanding that vandalising any Aboriginal object, place or site is a criminal offence and is against the law and is punishable by fines and potential imprisonment. I guess one of the other hard things must be balancing educating people 
about the sites in their communities, letting them know which sites are important, but also not publicising too much to the point of putting the sites at risk. Is that a tricky balancing act as well? Yeah, that's a super tricky balancing act. Management agencies in New South Wales don't give exact geospatial information around the location of these places. And so Aboriginal places are listed on a heritage information management system, which is mainly accessible by heritage practitioners and experts, land councils and and alike. But I think... In terms of educating the local community or potential visitors for heritage sites, there needs to be compelling and up-to-date interpretation as well as, you know, physical intervention or restrictive access guides for people. You know, if there's signage there that tells people, please don't walk on these places or please don't photograph it due to cultural protocols. People, I think, in most instances, will do the right thing and research in this sort of space sort of supports those sorts of inferences. Do you think there's a bigger impact of vandalism of these smaller sites as well, that it can lead to bigger destruction just because people are taking them less seriously across the board? Yeah, look, I think, you know, people might look at it and say, you know, it's just a, it's a small engraving site or, you know, it's, it's just in a state forest or, you know, in my local national park. How important can this place be? But that's really coming at it from a really uneducated, westernised perspective of what significant heritage and cultural places are. These places are sacred places. Often rock art sites, engraved rock art sites, are linked to really significant song lines and dream time creation stories, which encompass the complete spirituality and worldviews and ontological sort of understandings of how Aboriginal people connect with the world. For a non-Indigenous person to say, oh, it's just a you know, a small engraved rock art site comes from a place of misunderstanding and ignorance. These are people's sacred spiritual cultural sites and so they deserving and worthy and of, you know, respect. Dr Jones, do you think that there's more to be done in terms of, for instance, school kids learning about the significance of these sites of First Nations heritage in Australia, what it means to us but also what it means to the world? Yeah, I do, Dave. While there has been a review and a new curriculum for current school children in Australia, and that's really fantastic, I think the hearts and minds of Australian people and where the awareness needs to sort of become more impactful is those people who haven't gone through the school system recently. And I think that the media and public cultural institutions, as well as academics and researchers, um, need to do more in order to highlight the global significance of Australian Aboriginal culture in terms of the global story of human history. I mean, 
in places like Australia, you know, listed on the World Heritage List. You know, we have sites like Madja Baby, for example, which demonstrate that Australian Aboriginal people have been on this continent for 65,000 years, practising a range of really complex and nuanced behaviours. I don't know if there's an unwillingness or just a, a general complacency around really engaging with this deep time narrative more generally and understanding the significance on on all scales to to global human history to a to the Australian story and to you know local Aboriginal communities. Well, we definitely appreciate your expertise on this subject, Dr. Tristan Jones from the University of Sydney. Thank you very much for joining us on Hack. No problems, Dave. Thanks for having me. Hack on Triple J. And that is all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.